We should at least have a moment of silence, I guess, for the Urban Meyer-led Jacksonville Jaguar mm. squad. He chose one time not to fly back home with the team after mm. a loss. Said, I gotta see the grand babies. Mm. That's right. The only babies he saw were those young ladies at the shop house on the weekend. Devil. He had to answer a lot of questions about that, but then he got back on track and started coaching football. Huh? Oh, yeah. Forget about the fingers. And they won. They won a game in London. How'd they win? It's because they forgot about the fingers. That's right. And then they came back to America. And they lose. Oh. And they lose. What? And they lose. What? And they lose. What? And anonymous sources say it's laughed out of meeting rooms. Attitude reflect leadership, Captain. You can't lead others if you can't lead yourself. And you have to be good at that. And I think it requires a certain self-discipline to be able to do those things that lead to successful outcomes. And so if the work's not getting done and somebody else can't get it done, you've got to step in and make sure it happens. And so for years and years, I was making $35,000 a year and working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week. And I carry that with me to today. I mean, it made quite the impact on me that, you know, treating people right is a fundamental part of good leadership. Well, thanks for letting me be here. My name is Thomas Douglas. I'm the CEO of JMark Business Solutions in Springfield, Missouri, 49 years old. Uh, the company was actually founded in 1998 in a small town not far from here by the name of Kabul, Missouri. The gentleman who started the company was a brilliant guy by the name of James Montgomery Jr. And he moved the corporate offices to Springfield, where we are now. And he got uh, involved in some development as well as the IT managed services, which is what we focus on, and got a little overextended. And so when I joined the company after serving in the Navy from, I guess it was 1993 to 1997, I joined JMark in 97. As a level one engineer, I thought I was hot shit. Turned out I didn't know much. Uh, so when I got into the IT space, I had some great mentors, got to work with James and several other people inside the organization. And that gave me the opportunity to work my way up, use my skills that I learned in the Navy from organization, management, leadership, kind of getting things done, if you will, and developing repeatable processes. So I worked into a service manager role and then uh, eventually as the president and ended up buying the company from James in 2001. He was in a little bit of financial hardship at that time. And so myself and some investors recapitalized the business, actually had to downsize it to about six people, and then started really focusing on what it meant to build a solid and safe business and didn't like the business model whatsoever because we were focused on IT support, which was delivered at the time in a break fix or hourly capacity. So we had this crazy relationships with our clients. It was one where they would call us when they were frustrated because their computers wouldn't work. And then they would be frustrated because it would take us a day, two days, three days to get out on site to fix it. And then they would be happy for a moment when we fixed it. And then they would get the bill and would be frustrated again. <laughs> and so it was like this love-hate relationship. And I, I just despised it. And so I went through and I 
averaged the amount of work that we were doing for all of our, our recurring clients or regular clients, averaged their bills, increased it by 20%, put a all-you-can-eat model in place. And I increased it by 20% because, you know, when you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, you have a tendency to eat more, and I knew that they would consume more. So negotiated those deals. That launched managed services for us. So by about 2005, 2006, we had covered the overhead of the organization in our recurring services or service agreements. And that really allowed us to be an early adopter of managed services in the marketplace. We brought on a lot of tools and technologies for remote support and management as those became available. And now we're about 120 people and we have offices here in Springfield. We have an office in Tulsa. We have a heavy presence in Fayetteville, Oklahoma. We have clients in 43 states and we have people that operate out of seven different states. And so we've been very fortunate to grow and have just a fantastic team to work with. And it's just a lot of fun to come to work every day. Well, thank you, Thomas. You gave us the quickest summary of your whole business life right here and what a couple of minutes there. Fantastic job. Yeah, well, it's a fun story. We've built a great environment around here and actually one of our proudest accomplishments recently, we just won an award for being one of the top 20 best places to work in Springfield. And so we were super excited about that. All right. Yeah. In Springfield, Missouri. Correct. Well, yeah, I guess first off, thank you for your service. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure to do so. Put me on the path I'm on today. Nice. Yeah. I look forward to getting the details there. But first, I had a couple of questions on the stuff that you said. And we can talk about the higher level stuff today and then rewind it to how you got started. Does that sound good? Yeah. Sounds perfect. Thanks. Okay. Well, first off, you said Kabul. And I was a little worried because you said you're in Navy too. I'm like, I think we've all heard Kabul, but not Missouri, you know, <laughs> lately. You know, <laughs> I didn't even know there was, there was a Kabul until like a couple of months ago. If anyone's wondering, I'm referring to Kabul, Afghanistan, right? Versus Kabul, Missouri. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. A real small town. Great community. And when you think about small town America, Kabul fits the bill really well. Yeah, great, great folks, great people. Yeah, looks like 2,400 people there. So I would definitely say smaller in there. And then just overall, so I think I started laughing when you said the IT thing, when they'd be happy, like they complained that and then you took too long and then they'd be happy as fix. And then they complain when you send the bill because a guy I used to work with, he literally bitched about that all the time whenever he, because he was so bad with computers, he just messed stuff up all the time. He's the kind of guy who, I can't make this stuff up. Like when, and I know there's people out there who do this too. He'd open Outlook, he'd respond to emails, like a double click, respond, and then never close them. And literally had like 150 of them tabs. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. He's like, I try to help. You know, I imagine you've seen it all. Oh, yeah. But then I was, I was just like, you've got to close those. And he never would. Like, he always minimized everything. It's kind of like when people do browser tabs now, you know, but I'm like, eventually he's going to slow you down, bro. Like, you need to stop. And then, yeah, they come in. He'd bitch and call his old IT guys who lived in Virginia saying, is it right for them to charge this much? They're like, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's, every it, day. It's it. Yeah. It yeah. I'm like, what do you think they're doing? If they're working hourly and they take that many hours. Yeah. You definitely aren't making that up. I thought he was literally like the only one who would bitch about that, but it sounds like a lot of people do, huh? Oh or yeah. Did. It's a frustrating <laughs> relationship for everyone involved. I mean, from our perspective, our cash flow was unpredictable. We never knew, you know, for a while, it was like, how are we going to make payroll? And it's like, oh, look, a virus outbreak. We're going to make payroll. <laughs> That's like all the wrong reasons to be happy to be working. I mean, you know, we just had to flip the business model up so that we won when our clients won, which meant their stuff was working. And so that flipped the whole business model to a proactive environment. So we're responsible for keeping it running rather than responding when it broke. And it was a way better environment. When you're talking about virus outbreak, we're not talking about like coronavirus outbreaks. We need computer virus outbreaks. Yeah, computer right? virus. That's right. 
So would y'all make viruses? Would y'all just send them to all your clients so you could get more work? <laughs> no, we, we did have some people that joked about that over the years for sure. But no, we definitely didn't. Okay, so y'all aren't the ones sending me to my personal like Microsoft Exchange, I think Office 365. They rename it every two years, you know. <laughs> but um, I think every other day I get an email from someone who is not from Microsoft telling me to double click a link to download a file. <laughs> you know? that's so right. I, I, every single time I'm like, you're not fooling me, but I'm feeling you on that love hate relationship. Cause I get like, yeah, he just hated you guys, the IT guys. I'm like, dude, they're just doing their job. Oh, I guess I never needed them cause I wasn't double clicking those type of links and stuff, but <laughs> right. I could see how that'd be like, you know, frustrating, even just business wise, not even just trying to make money, but if someone's never happy to see you, right. That just doesn't feel good. Yeah. It's, you know, my dad and my brother are both attorneys. There's there's a certain element of that in that environment as well. I mean, people are like, everybody hates attorneys until they need one. And then it's like, oh, well, they're my best friend, you know, and it's the same kind of thing. You're happy with the services and you're happy with oftentimes the outcomes, but, you know, the bills come in and it's like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And so we, as a business, we didn't want to trade dollars for hours anymore. We wanted it to be outcome-based and we wanted to be rewarded for great outcomes rather than being rewarded for responding to broken things. And that has created such a positive environment for us and our clients where we can actually focus on innovations and focus on productivity and focus on you know security and management and what it means to drive employee culture to a more positive environment. All of those things are a part of what we do now instead of just hoping something breaks so we can get paid. And what year did you make that transition? It was shortly after I bought the company in 2001, so it's been a long time ago, but I would love to say that it was a stroke of brilliance, but it certainly wasn't. It was just frustration with the business model itself. It was just, your clients should be happy to work with you, not frustrated when they get your bills. And so that's when we switched it. That was the reason for making it, making the move and stability for our business so that we could scale because our back then, or prior to the move anyway, or the switch, our, our revenue was so unpredictable. It was really hard to scale, like knowing when to hire an engineer and when not to, and all of those things became very challenging. But when we had a steady revenue stream, it gave us the ability to create and then learn the metrics of how many devices and users we were supporting in correlation to the number of people that we had on our team. And so it allowed us to make sure that our you know, our CSATs, our client satisfaction scores were high and we had the right ratios and we could be stable and safe as a business. So it was a win, win, win. So what was the cost to like a customer beforehand? Like how much were you charging hourly? And then what do you come up with your monthly rate? Well, it, you know, back in the day, I think 2001 and whatnot, I think we were charging $75 an hour back in those days. And in today, it really depends on the environment that we're supporting. It'll range from $100 per user per month up to about $205, $210 per user per month, depending on the vertical, the industry, the technologies we're supporting, what we're bringing to the table, things like that. Okay. So even back then, would you estimate what it was like 100, 150 per user per month when you were doing that before? No, it was like less. When, the transition? when we started, we didn't understand how much it cost to actually run an IT business. And so we kind of starved ourselves for a while. We didn't know how to measure margin in the business and how to figure. I mean, like our financials were very immature and we didn't know the model. And we weren't charging per user, but it probably would have averaged out to be like 80 bucks or something per user. 
Okay. But you were just charging per month? Yeah, because I was thinking just per month too initially when you started. So I probably would have done the same thing. So what do you think you're allotting like what, 10 hours per month? I guess again, it just depends on the company size and everything. So it's just one of those transitions that I think there's going to be a learning curve no matter what, even if you get an idea, because you just don't know. And especially like you're saying, different verticals, I guess if you're going into one company that's tech heavy versus one company that they just need guys to stop opening so many Outlook messages and not minimizing them, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, you know, the banking industry is one that we do a lot of work oh, in and they're, okay. you know, heavy compliance, a lot of regulatory burden in the industry. And unfortunately, we have to step in and help a lot of financial institutions through that. And there's just an enormous amount of time and energy that goes into compliance around security and patches and remediation of audit findings and going through the entire audit process itself. And so you know, a lot more labor and candidly more expensive tools that have to be deployed in the environment to ensure that everyone is safe and we have vision of what's going on. And so it's both a combination of technologies and people and time that that go into coming up with it. But the hard part is, you know, banking has been hammered off and on over the years. And the cost of running a community bank in today's world is just enormous because of that burden. I think number one question everyone wants to know is... If you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion. And launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. Energetic Austin here, and with hybrid work becoming the norm, the strongest teams have two things in common, speed and alignment. Both come from having one hub where everyone can share work and processes, manage projects, and collaborate with clarity. For companies of all sizes, Notion provides one central and customizable workspace that can be tailored to fit any team and bring all teams together to get more done and move faster. Notion is an all-in-one team collaboration tool that combines note-taking, document sharing, wikis, project management, and much more into one space. That's simple, powerful, and beautifully designed. With powerful integrations and seamless navigation, you'll have everything you need in one spot so you can make speed your advantage without the silos and contacts switching the slow companies down. Plus, Notion has a worldwide network of millions of users creating templates, tutorials, and new inspiration. The product is getting better all the time, and you'll always have the support you need, unlike me in the bedroom. Find out how Notion may be the missing piece your team needs to grow, get more done, and delight everyone who uses it in the process. Learn more and get started for free at notion.so. You can check it out on your own and invite as many folks as you want to see how it works. 
Take the first step toward an organized, happy team today. Again, at Notion.so. That's Notion.so. Are you a PC guy or a Mac guy? I am a PC guy, yeah. I have done both. <laughs> I can operate in both, but all of our tools operate from a Windows platform and from a IT governance perspective, it's a lot easier to manage the PC environment than it is the Mac environment. But we do have Macs in our company, and like I say, I've used them as well. So I don't have anything against them, but from a productivity perspective, the way I operate, I get about twice as much done in a Windows environment than I do in the Mac. I was going to ask if anyone gets hired if they're a Mac person. Yeah, we have to have them. We support them. <laughs> Only because you have to. Yeah. And we have some of those folks in the team too. So the marketing team has a Mac or two, and we have a few others who prefer the Mac environment. So that's okay. Again, you're in Missouri? Yes. All right. And I heard it like started off there, right? I mean, in Kabul, I remember that part, right? Yeah. And started in there, moved to, it was 1998, sorry, 1996. We moved the corporate office to Springfield. Uh, and then we made a few acquisitions over the years that helped us to expand into the Oklahoma and Fayetteville markets. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm looking at Springfield's not, I mean, I've heard of it. It's not very big either, really considerably. What are you like two hours South of Kansas city? Would you say or something? Yeah. A little bit more than that, but pretty yeah. close. Okay. So yeah, you're in the Southwest corner of Missouri in case anyone's wondering. Why don't we rewind it to, I guess, when you came out of college or went to the Navy, what's the best place for us to start off in your story? Oh, probably college. I went to University of Missouri, Columbia, Mizzou, as it's known. I spent two and a half years there. And I say start there because it wasn't much of a story. I figured out that for me, college wasn't the way to go. I wasn't really learning anything. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I tried business and I tried pre-law and I tried, I even tried recreation management because I was partying a lot. And I thought, well, if I'm going to party a lot, I may as well learn how to recreate professionally. And I didn't do it either. So I dropped out, see, I guess it was around 93, and worked in construction for a period of time, and then decided to join the Navy in August of 93, and began my journey in the Navy for the next four years. Well, what did your parents think when you dropped out? Oh, they were concerned. My parents were, and my mom has passed away. My dad is still alive, and but both of them supported me through anything. And my mom was quite concerned with me going into the military. My original ambition in going into the Navy was to be a Navy SEAL. She was really concerned about that, but still supported me. And but the worry, you know, dropping out of college is, you know, how are you going to create a career? You know, working construction or working in those other environments can be very rewarding, can be very challenging. But they just wanted me to make sure I was happy and they could see that I wasn't. So they supported me in making that choice. Yeah. Well, because you said your dad was a lawyer too. So I was curious because, you know, especially if it's obviously education intensive. So after like two and a half years, you drop out more than likely, you probably aren't going to be a lawyer. But then I could see like you're saying when you're going to be getting into construction, you're definitely hanging out with the different types of crew, if you will. Then if you're going into the Navy, I could see maybe the ups and downs of their concerns. Because, you know, I think all of us who are listening aren't always going to have our parents support or they're going to be worried sometimes or whatever. So yeah, I guess after you said you told them you're going to join the Navy, maybe that helped, even though your mom might have been a little bit worried about going to battle and whatnot, right? Correct. Yeah. It took them a little bit to reconcile it. You know, it wasn't an overnight thing. They wanted me to be happy. They wanted me to have a career and a lifestyle that could provide for a family in the future. And they were worried that I wasn't on a path to do that. 
Oh, my parents are worried about that for me right now, being a podcaster. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll prove them wrong, I'm sure. I'll try. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I just had to put my two cents in there and interrupt your story for no reason. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it's all good. That's just it. You know, our parents, and being a parent now, I mean, you want your kids to make decisions that are going to put them on the right path and that aren't going to, you know, make it really challenging to operate and, and struggle. They say money doesn't buy happiness, and that's true, but having stability in your life is like one of the fundamental things that you need in order to be happy. If you're constantly worried about how you're going to pay the bills and how to make ends meet and how you're going to provide for your family in one way or another, then you're constantly walking around or living your life with a lead vest on. And so it doesn't buy happiness, but it gives you permission to have freedom to do things as a family, you know, whether it's vacations or homes or whatever it is that you want to do that make life easier. I'm a believer that you need to figure out what's important in your life and then build your lifestyle around that. My parents were going back to the story. They were just worried that I was on a trajectory of a lifetime of really hard work that was going to result in a kind of a burdened lifestyle, if you will. Not that construction is bad by any means, because I know lots of people that do really well in construction, but they knew that it wasn't my thing. It didn't give me joy. It didn't make me happy. I was doing it to make ends meet. And that was kind of it. Right. It's way harder to come out of that on business savvy, if you will. Again, like because a lot of alcoholism, drug use, whatnot, and the construction field versus, again, going in the Navy and having the stability that you're talking about. So I'm sure your dad was excited about that, even again, even though your mom might have been a little bit worried because you have that stability, right? It gives you those goals and you have a resource to help put you on the right path. So once you started, what did you end up doing in the Navy? Because I know you said you wanted to be a SEAL at some point. Yeah. When I went in, I trained for a really long time and thought that that's what I wanted to do. And through uh, some interactions with some guys that were SEALs and seeing their lifestyles, I realized that that's not what I wanted. I, I had the utmost respect for them, but it wasn't right for me. So I just kind of buckled down and worked in the Navy. I was in logistics, inventory, financial management for the ship. So we were responsible for getting all of the cargo in the inventory, the repair parts for the ship, on board the ship before we deployed. And then when we were deployed, ordering the parts of any of the consumables or whatever that we needed in order to operate when we were underway. And that's what led me down the path of really understanding financials because we had to manage, you know, multi-million dollar budgets for five fiscal years. And it just kind of exposed me to a whole new world of budget management, understanding financials, understanding inventory management, and what it meant to really be good at logistics, which is a challenge when you're, you know, deployed overseas. Mm -hmm. Well, where were you located when you joined the Navy? You weren't in Missouri anymore, I imagine. No, no, I, I ended up on the, uh, the destroyer, the USS Arthur W. Radford. It was stationed out of Norfolk, Virginia. Then we deployed on multiple med cruises and did some drug ops off the coast of Cuba and Haiti and some off the coast of Florida in that area. But our major deployments were into the Mediterranean. So, yeah, you said you went to the Mediterranean a lot, but were you dispatched to one of the coasts first, like one of the coast cities in the U.S.? Like, where were you in the U.S. And before you went to the Mediterranean? The Radford was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia. And so I went to boot camp and then I went to training school, what they call A school down in Mississippi. And then from Mississippi, I was stationed on the ship in Norfolk, Virginia. And then actually I checked in, I guess it was December of 93. 
that I checked in to the Radford and we deployed to the Mediterranean like the first or second week of January, gone for six months, give or take. And before you tell us about that experience, because I am interested, how was boot camp and everything after you joined where you're like, wow, I shouldn't have done this? Or you're like, this is the place for me and the Navy's it. You know, I needed the structure. It was what I needed. My whole life had kind of been, or I say my whole life, my college time and in construction had just kind of been chaos. It was very unpredictable and very, oh, I guess, flippant or, you know, wing it kind of an environment. Didn't have a plan, didn't know where I was going, didn't have a routine on a daily basis. And so when I got into that, I thrived. It was very, very good for me. It was exactly what I needed. You know, physically, you're pushed in different ways, you know, in sleep. And, you know, marching and being out in the cold because boot camp was in Chicago, Great Lakes. And even that time of year, by the time I got out, it was starting to get pretty cold. And then the groups that came in behind me, they dealt with a really cold. So it gets pretty miserable. But all in all, in boot camp, A school and the military overall gave me the structure and the foundation that I needed in life because I, I was just floundering. And then you get dispatched, you said, eventually to the Mediterranean just a couple months later? Yep. Or one month later, even sounds like. So when you do that, what was that experience like? Had you been out of the U.S. before? I had been out of the U.S. just a little bit to like vacation with my folks on some islands and stuff, but nothing substantial like this. Uh, You know, I got exposed to all kinds of environments. We went up into the area around Romania and Bulgaria. And I think in that environment, I got my first real exposure to how fortunate we are in the U.S. I was talking to a guy, we were standing watch together who was, I believe it was in Bulgaria. I have to go back. I actually have some notes on it. We were standing watch overnight one night, and I asked him if he ever wanted to come to the U.S., and he said, sure, I would love to come to the U.S., but one ticket cost as much as he made in an entire year, and he was the only source of income for himself, his wife, his two kids, his parents, and her parents, and they all lived in a one-room home, and he was the sole source of income. So, I mean, he had no way of moving outside of that or having enough funds, at least in the military income, to get out of Bulgaria and move to the U.S. or anywhere else. He was very stuck. And, you know, they slept on the floor and they made do and he was happy, but it was a very challenging environment. And I think those exposures help you to have a better appreciation for how great we have it in the States. Yeah. Was that just a random guy you met when you were up there or was he in the Bulgarian Navy or something? Like, how do you run into this guy? He was in, I think it was the Navy or some branch of the military. So when we pulled in, they provide security assistance for us when we're in port. So we stand watch and make sure that nobody comes close to the ship that isn't supposed to, and they provide assistance. And so he and I were standing next to each other, standing watch overnight. Okay. Yeah. Those type of experiences, you know, after you finally have it once, then you do realize how lucky you are. No matter how bad things might get personally or financially for your family in the U.S., when you're in the U.S., when people like bitch about life not being great here, like go somewhere else and really see it. Because you obviously haven't been if you're really going to complain about how bad life is in the U.S., Yeah, that's correct. It's frustrating. And I know lots of veterans and there's so many sacrifices and so many gifts that we have in the United States. And then you have people that just bitch and bitch and bitch and complain. And they really don't understand that freedom's not free. And it's frustrating. 
I mean, you do what you do and you do it so that they can bitch, but it, <laughs> it, it it's frustrating. Yeah. And so you did that for, I guess, obviously, basically four years there. Well, how long were you in the Navy? Yep, that's right. Four years. I was going to re-enlist and stay in for a longer period of time. And I had a mentor in the Navy and he actually encouraged me to get out. He told me that there's lots of people in the world that could do what I was doing in the Navy, but that I had some special leadership skills and capabilities in terms of just building and seeing a bigger picture. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I was like, eh, whatever. But I followed his advice and I started to work on the exit strategy from the Navy. And my dad again stepped in and he said, well, you've got to have a career. What are you going to do? And I'd found computers when I was in the Navy and started to write some of my own databases and start to upgrade my own computers and do some of those fun things back in the Windows 95 days. So I got certified before I got out of the Navy and then interviewed with several organizations and then ended up landing here at JMark. Okay, nice. I'd like to talk about some more of your Navy experiences probably before we get out to see if there's any other stories. But it's funny that you say that because I always forget this. I was doing a little entrepreneur presentation where I had to hook up my computer and you might appreciate this. As my Windows pops up, I had my background actually show Windows 95 and the logo. And the guy was an IT guy, and he almost, he said he almost passed out because he thought I was using Windows 95 today. <laughs> you know, yeah. Because it kind of looked like that. It, used, it looked like the startup screen for Windows 95. If anyone remembers, I mean, you might not remember off the top of your head, but if you just Google Windows 95 and you see that up, you know, the icon that comes up. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah, he definitely almost passed out. So it's funny that you said that. Yeah, that is funny. Yeah, that's a riot. We've had some of the guys here in the office that'll like do fun stuff like that. And it, it always cracks me up. Well, one, actually the best computer joke I saw, or my buddy told me, he said it might've been his IT guy or something like that. Here's what they did. They took us, they had one monitor screen or whatever. They print screened it and then they hit all their icons in like my documents or something like that. And then they put that as their background, the print screen. So then it, they keep trying to double click, you know, something. It, it nothing would work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard that one? I don't know. Maybe y'all have all your little tricks, but I thought that was a pretty clever one. Yeah, we've seen that one for sure. It's a lot of fun. And we had a guy, you know, the, the guys will play jokes back and forth. And so they got into a little bit of an internal Oh, debate and argument, kind of a war, I guess. And it was like, who could do the thing to the other one? And they wrote a script on one of the computers so that when he booted it up, it popped up with a bunch of like, you know, pornography and, and you know, like little, you know, My Little Pony. And I mean, like all of these random websites were just coming up at like 100 miles an hour and he couldn't stop them. He couldn't click them fast enough to shut them all down. It was pretty fun. Yeah, I'm not that skill set. I'm on like, you know, level one. I know how to print screen. Okay. So I do I'm not sure I could write a script. There's one other one too. I guess if anyone's listening, that was, I thought was funny. This girl, this was back like when I was in college. And I don't think you could, I don't think people really download music anymore, but it was like in iTunes. If you rename like the titles of any of the MP3s, you could like hold shift and do them all at the same time. But if you do that, you can't press undo. And so one girl, she said she was not happy with her boyfriend. I don't know what he had been doing, but uh, if he really deserved it or not. But I remember reading a story or something or hear from somebody like he went in the shower and she went and highlighted like all 3000, 4000 songs, whatever he had renamed them all the same thing. And then you don't know which one's which and you can't undo. Like oh my that gosh. was dirty. It's kind of messed up that iTunes never had to undo. 
like to, to do that. But yeah, I was like, yeah, especially back then. Yeah. Then all you knew is that the actual like timestamps, you're like, you'd have to listen to them all to <laughs> figure out which oh, yeah. song was what. Oh, that's horrible. But yeah, I guess, yeah, before you got out of the Navy, was there anything else that you can remember that was pretty valuable or interesting experiences while you were there for those four years? I described one of my experiences there. I worked for a lieutenant who was the biggest ass in the world, and he helped me to realize what leadership was not. And I describe it as the asshole who made me a leader because working for him was just a train wreck. He was one of those really self-promoters who, you know, kind of pumped his chest and he did everything and he was always right. And he took credit for everything and then was, you know, would turn around and just bark orders and be very degrading to everybody that worked below him. And I always said that if I was ever in any kind of a leadership position, that I would not be like him. And I carry that with me to today. I mean, it made quite the impact on me that, you know, treating people right is a fundamental part of good leadership. And his lack of clarity or vision and being able to know what humanity is and in good leadership. It just amazed me that he was even able to operate in the Navy and that they couldn't see it the way we did. If this year has taught us anything, it's that tomorrow may look nothing like today. But Schwab knows that successful financial planning can help propel net worth by 2.7 times. That's why Schaub offers a variety of easy, flexible financial planning options that can rise to meet any of life's many curveballs. Whether it's making a complimentary retirement plan online or chatting directly with a financial consultant, anyone can look forward to planning with Schaub. Learn more at schwab.com slash plan. That's schwab, S-C-H-W-A-B dot com slash plan. Streaming has revolutionized our lives. We used to wonder if there was anything good on TV. Now we just ask ourselves which of the thousands of great options we're in the mood for. The same thing goes for books. Instead of standing in front of your bookshelf waiting for a title to jump out at you, sign up for Scribd. You get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more, all with one low monthly subscription. I use Scribd to find the latest and greatest business secrets that will take my business to the next level. And you can too. With Scribd, you can access the largest digital library in the world, right from your favorite device. Automated suggestions and hand-curated picks make choosing your next book easier than ever. Easily switch between titles, genres, and formats right from the app. And discover new work from authors like Roxanne Gray, Charles Yu, and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com slash millionaire for your free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash millionaire to get 60 days of Scribd for free. Oh, yeah, it's important you drew that lesson then. Because, again, at the time... You aren't happy, right? But then like looking back or even getting out or maybe after a little bit of time, you're like, okay, at least I learned that now and I won't be like that guy, hopefully, you know? So sometimes like even if you never had that guy, I'm not saying you'd be more of an like an asshole today or anything like that, but sometimes just having someone who's that extreme when you're younger and impressionable, you're like, okay, now I'll make sure I won't be like that guy. Yeah. Versus if you had a regular guy, maybe you could be more of an asshole now, but then you're like, okay, uh, again, that experience, everyone just 
always say, just remember the negative experiences you're having and what's it, someone in leadership and how that made you feel. And you will remember not to do that. So even though it might suck in the moment, later on, it'll be much more beneficial. Oh, yeah, 100%. And it was so obvious because we had the just the opposites. You know, we had several leaders in the Navy that were incredible. And you could see that they cared and that they were focused on your success and, you know, helping you to be, you know, the best version of yourself. And you have these positive role models and leaders. And then you have the extreme of this asshole who was just impossible to work for. And so to your point, exactly, you know, it helped me to see what good leadership was, what bad leadership was. And that put us on the path that we're on today. I mean, that leadership style of helping people to be the best version of themselves is a fundamental part of our culture. And that's why we won the award for best places to work. I mean, it continues to pay dividends. And when you were in the Navy after those six months in the Mediterranean, did you keep being deployed there or were you deployed anywhere else that was interesting? I would say the yes is the answer. We came back from the Mediterranean back to Norfolk and we would work and fix the ship, repair the ship, do whatever maintenance needed to happen there. And we did another Mediterranean cruise. I think I ended up hitting 18 countries altogether. But I would say the interesting one that we did were the drug ops off the coast of Cuba when we would go down and block ships, you know, board ships, check them out, make sure that they weren't trying to smuggle mostly cocaine at the time into the U.S. Wow. That sounds like fun. Y'all weren't stealing and using it for yourselves, were you? No, we stopped several ships and checked them out, but we never found any drugs, fortunately. So that was actually a good thing. All right. So yeah, you were down there. Were you actually like stationed in Cuba or were you stationed in Florida? No, we were on the ship, just deployed. And I think it was about been a while. I think it was about two and a half months that we were deployed down there. And we just traveled around the coastline and Cuba and down around Haiti. And we did some relief efforts around Haiti. And we pulled into port in Guantanamo Bay and refueled and got stock on board and supplies and then deployed again. Would that ever get like boring? Are you just like circling the island over and over? What is it like? Did you enjoy that experience at all or not really? I did. I got to read a lot. My brother actually sent me his accounting books when I was deployed. And so I self-studied through uh, college accounting books. And I enjoyed the time because I like learning and I like consuming information. And when you're deployed, you know, on in a Navy ship, you have working hours and could be anywhere on the clock in terms of when your working hours are. And it rotates for sure, but you have off hours too. And so you're able to read, study, there's TV, there's, you know, a workout room, small workout room. You're able to, to stay busy if you take the time and focus on what you want to do. How big is the ship and how many people are on it? It was about 500, I'd have to look it up again, 563 feet long, something like that. It was a destroyer, you said, or what? Yep. What are the sleeping quarters like? Tight. <laughs> how, many, how many people are in a room? Like how tight? So if you can imagine that you have an aisleway that's about three feet wide, probably, give or take, and you have three beds, one that's pretty well on the floor, one that's waist high, and then one that's above that, and they're each pretty narrow. So like if you rolled over, you would fall off. When you rolled over, you had to kind of stay in the same spot. And so they would stack nine of those down an aisle, and we had about, mm, give or take, probably 30 some odd, 40 people in our birthing area. So when you study, are you studying in your bed or is there somewhere else you can go study? 
No, there's you know, there's the cafeteria areas, but I worked in a kind of an off, a small little office area on the ship, and so I would go down there and study. Okay, maybe that's like the biggest personal space you had, so maybe that's why you were studying so much. Sleeping quarters are not are not ideal, and and you know when you're crossing the Atlantic or you get into rough seas, even though it's a decent sized ship, it would rock and roll. And so, man, you could, you know, it would lean and lean and you had to kind of tuck yourself in with your covers to make sure you didn't fall out. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know you had basically triple bunk beds. And then you're saying how many in a row, like nine? In the aisle, but there were probably 30 to 40 in the whole birthing area. It was a decent sized room, but there was a lot of people in there. I'm not that great at math. I am good at doing my times tables by nines, but I was like thinking 27, right? If you're doing nine by three up, right? I thought you might even have like three person to one room and have your own room, but you're not even saying that. It's not even close to being that nice. No, officer's quarters are, are two to a room. Enlisted quarters are not. I think, let's see, let's see, one, nine. We were probably 34 to a room with a small little open area in the middle and then a shower room and bathroom. Oh, my gosh. Again, another thing that makes you appreciate probably where you're going to sleep tonight, right? Yeah, exactly. In a, cushion, in a nice soft bed. But everyone thinks it could get worse. It could always get worse. Even if you're the U.S., you're like, it's awesome that you were in the Navy and they can thank you for your service and stuff. But like, you know, sleeping, have your own personal space. Like, geez, I'm just like looking at my room right now and how roomy I feel compared to you being on that ship. Yeah, well, and we, you know, the Navy life is way easier than Marines or Army. I mean, it's, I consider myself fortunate compared to sleeping in the desert in a tent in Afghanistan or something, you know, it's not near as bad as so many others had it. Yeah. But I had another guy on, I've heard the easiest life is the air force life. Have you heard that or no? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You said, oh yeah, real quick. (laughs) (laughs) He said, that's why he joined it. Because I asked him, I said, why does everyone, you know, you have all these rivalries, army, Navy. And I'm like, it seems jointly, everyone hates the air force. (laughs) He said, because they have the easiest. (laughs) That's why he joined it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about hate, but I, I think there's, there is that rivalry there for sure. All right. So, yeah, thanks for sharing those insights. I just always think it's interesting because we're here to learn about business, but it's interesting to hear. I think all the stories, everyone's had a little different one. So coming out, you joined J-Mark, which is the company that you own today. And how old were you? Let's see, I was 24, 25 when I joined. And then uh, I guess I was close to 30 when I, I bought the company. Okay. Well, yeah, well, coming out, you didn't necessarily do IT stuff in the Navy, did you? Or did you kind of slowly transition to that? Or like, how were you able to get that job at JMark? You know, so we did financials, inventory management. So I was working on kind of the old green screen style computers, if you remember those back in the day, like mainframe style. And I didn't like the way that they handled some of the min max levels in certain types of inventory. So I was able to do a, a dump of all the data. And I wrote my own little access database and started to just really get into what it meant to use computers to solve problems. And then the computer wasn't fast enough to do everything I needed. So I had to upgrade it and that got me into the hardware side. And then before I got out of the Navy, I went and got certified. Okay. And then from there, did you know you wanted to go back to born and raised in Missouri or where were you born and raised? Yeah, born and raised in a town called Bolivar, Missouri. That's just north of here, about 30 miles. Did you go to that small city, Kabul, right out of the Navy? No, I came to Springfield. They had, uh, the, James had moved the main office for J. Mark into Springfield at that time, and that's where I started. And did you just want to go back to Missouri because that's where your family was and everything? Right. Okay. And so you start there, and then what are you you're just doing all the IT stuff? 
people getting, being mad at you for charging hourly at this point? Yep, that's exactly right. I had enough attention to detail that my notes were good and my hours were good. I was a high biller. I, I produced a lot of revenue for the company. And, you know, there was kind of a that love-hate relationship that existed with the clients. They liked it because I did good work, but I also took very good notes and billed them for every minute that I was there, where some people were a little more lax and they liked that a little more when it came to the bill. At some point, I guess just over time, you were working hard enough that the owner said, hey, do you want to buy out the business or how'd that work? How'd that transition go? Yeah, I, I moved into some management positions inside the organization just because it was kind of chaotic back in the day. And so I organized a lot of things and got things squared away in terms of how to run it and how to make sure that every person was tracking their time properly, that we were billing properly that we were, you know, being good to our clients. And if, if it took us too long to solve a problem because, you know, a lack of knowledge or seeing something for the first time, you know, we would adjust invoices accordingly and just kind of started to run the service operation. And because of that, I was working with the owner more and more and helping him with cash flow and helping him with sales and helping him with other operations and found some problems. They, they had an accountant at the time that had made a bunch of bad choices. And I found some problems that he had created and helped him to kind of navigate through all of those. And when the business got to a point where it was in trouble financially, again, James was a brilliant engineer, technician, technologist, and still is, but had some challenges in business. And so we needed to recapitalize the company. And that was the opportunity I had to buy it. Well, what mistakes did you find that the accountant made? Is there something that won't put us to sleep that's easy to understand for everybody? Have you ever heard of kiting checks? No, I haven't. So he had set up about six or so different checking accounts at various banks in the community. And because cash flow was so bad, and back in the day, you know, you weren't doing like ACH transfers and things like that where it was all real time. So he would write a check from one account to the other and one account to the other. And so you would kind of chase the money around. Then he would write a check to pay our vendors. Well, you can do that for a period of time, but at some point, you know, it catches up with you. You know, you got to pay the piper. And I think he was doing it because he was desperate because the company was so starved for cash. But it, rather than it just being above board and saying, hey, we don't have cash, we need to do something. He had kind of developed this style that he would take $30,000 and write four checks or five checks for all these banks and then write the check out of the last one. And so by the time that the cash made around, he was hoping that we would get payment into the organization to cover the check. And eventually it didn't. And checks started bouncing. And, and then we started back into why and how. And it was a I wouldn't call it quite accounting forensics, but it was quite a job to track it all down and to figure out and find the money. And so was it the owner doing that or the accountant doing that? The accountant that was working for the owner. <laughs> the accountant was doing that? Like that, that seems like a weird thing to do. Like I could see an owner yeah. doing it because they don't know, you know, and you're desperate, like you're saying, versus accountant, you'd think like, hey, you would probably not a best practice, you no. know, just the, you know, I don't need to be an accountant to tell you that's probably not the best way to run it. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. And it puts you in this. I don't know. I mean, I think he was trying to keep the business afloat. He was trying to just do something to cover it. But when you're doing things that are dishonest, it, it always comes back to bite you in the ass. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say it's like the quote unquote, like this, the most dishonest thing It's just like, even if anyone who's thinking business wise, how much time is that guy doing just doing that versus if you just spent putting it all in one account and trying to figure out, like you said, a way to increase revenue. To just be way more efficient than trying to figure out six or seven accounts and maybe spending half a day every day figuring out how we're going to pay everybody. 
Well, you know, it comes down to making hard choices. And when people are faced with, you know, doing something a little bit shady or however you describe it, or making a hard choice, like having to let people go so that the business can cash flow, people don't always make good choices. You know, one of the lessons that, that you learn as you go along is you have to make hard choices. And if you don't make the hard choices when you need to make the hard choices, then they're made for you. And they're oftentimes a lot worse. And so you just have to buckle down, have the guts to make those hard choices. And when you do, you know, you create this capability for the business to survive rather than get into trouble where you literally have to recapitalize and save the business from bankruptcy. I was like, when my wife met me, she said she was desperate. So she made a bad choice and married me. So it's funny that it, com <laughs> it comes full circle in our interview, right? Yeah, there you go. Well, all right. So at that point, you're, you had saved up enough money to say, hey, I can buy it out or, you know, buy some equity or like, how did that work exactly? Because that's kind of an interesting conversation to have if you've been working somewhere the whole time and becoming a part owner or full owner or whatever it was. Yeah, well, you know, James was in a tough spot for sure. But I, not only myself, but my dad and some other folks that I knew in our family and outside the family eventually were all partnered up and bought it. I was a small investor from a cash perspective, but you know, mine was more sweat equity and learning to run the business and taking it out of practically bankruptcy. The other investors were not. And eventually we, we were fortunate enough to buy everybody out. So was it an easy sell to your parents or anybody else? Because it seems like you were the guy who had to raise the capital then to uh, recapitalize it, right? So how did you sell them on it? We were like, hey, this has the potential. It's just the accountant was thought it would be smart to have seven checking accounts and move money around. If I can just take care of this, then I can see the future in this. Like, how did you sell everybody on that? Yeah, good question. Well, it was understanding the business model of the time, which was how much cash were we averaging per month? Were we producing? And then how could we adjust the expense model to make sure that, that the business was profitable and safe? And so I spent hours and hours and hours running through the numbers to understand what that was. And that's why, because at the time, I think there was 14 or 15 people in the company. And that's why we had to downsize to six. And so we shrank the company. We managed the expenses to the point where it aligned with the revenue. And, you know, on paper, it made sense. And I was fortunate that people trusted me to do a good job. And so we dove in head first. And so as you were able to raise the capital and make the transition, that's when you transitioned from the hourly to the monthly or per user, right? And was it just kind of smooth sailing from there? Oh, no, no. You know, building a company is hard. You know, there's people dynamics, there's learning how to sell, and there's selling things that you shouldn't have sold because you're excited about a big opportunity. And the lessons are far and wide in terms of what it was like. It, I was fortunate my wife is an accountant. And I met her. She actually worked for one of our customers, and that's how we met. And at one point, she started helping with the books and keeping the wheels on the bus, became the controller of the organization for years and years. And you just go through these phases of business growth. You know, there's a book that's called Predictable Success by Les McEwen that I think is absolutely fantastic that, that really helps to kind of share the dynamics of what it's like to grow a business. You start off kind of in that fun phase. and it's, you know, everybody's excited because we're going to go, you know, save the world and everybody kind of does everything, right? It's like, I'm the president of the company, but I'm still teching and I'm still selling and I'm still 
running payroll and everybody kind of does everything. And then you start to grow and you figure out that you can't do that. And you got to figure out how to communicate and create accountability and, and, you know, make sure you're taking care of people and paying right and make big decisions. So I've taken it so far that I'm in the process of finishing a book that's called Adapt or Die that shares all of the lessons that we've learned over the last 25 years. Nice. Is that going to be out by the time this comes live? It will launch in first quarter of 2022. Okay. So we'll say then adapt or die. So can people just get that on Amazon? Yeah, it'll be published on Amazon. We have a website and it's adapterdie.com. It's just partially built out at this point. It's a template, but we'll be standing it up and launching it with the book and actually offering some courses online to go through that just kind of teaches you what I describe as the algorithm of success. So all the things that you need to know in an algorithm format to properly run a business from product all the way through to the financial model, the strategy, the people, the operations, the processes, all the things that it takes to run a successful small to medium-sized business. What if I told you you could be more productive in business and in the bedroom? Well, you probably know that I was talking about our next sponsor, which is Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. When the guys and gals over at Magic Mind sent me their magical elixir a few weeks ago, I won't lie, I was a bit skeptical. But once I took down a shot of Magic Mind, let's just say that A, I got more work done in one hour than I had the entire previous week, and B, my wife said I looked sexier and larger in all the right places, which she was talking about my big brain, of course. See, Magic Mind is a nootropic shot of healthy, natural ingredients that helps you decrease stress, boost blood flow, and keep you focused. Magic Mind was made for smart men and women just like you. Don't just take my word for it. Hear how the guys on Not Another Bachelor podcast are using Magic Mind in their workplace. Get this. As you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I got some people that work for me. I've been getting ready to fire like three guys. And then I discovered magicmind.co. And what I did is I started taking that elixir and I poured in their coffee before we start the day. Whole new employee showing up. I don't need to fire anybody anymore. I got really productive employees kicking ass for me. Profits are up. Have they mentioned the taste of the coffee? They haven't noticed a bit. One of the benefits that isn't even on the bottle. I don't know if you're having a little uh, trouble with the sex life with your spouse. When they're not looking, you pour a little bit of this in their uh, nightly wine or something like that. Next thing you know, they'll be fucking giving you a This isn't any male enhancement or anything like that. What it does is unlocks the supercomputer that is the human brain. It will free up your creative and confident mind when you are in the bedroom. If you wanted to do a whirling dervish, well, now you can You'll have the creativity and the Zen hum that will allow you to execute that flawless maneuver in the bedroom. So if you're ready to race past your competition and satisfy your partner, then try Magic Mind today. Go visit magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code millionaire20 to get 20% off your first order. That's magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code millionaire20. Okay. So they could sign up there even if this episode is coming out before then to get the book. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, we we mentioned that at the end. I figured just say that now because I thought you said you're at some point you're coming out with a book. So yeah, I guess back to your story at this point, you said that there's a lot of hurdles, but overall, what was the hardest thing you had to do? I think when you made that transition from becoming a part owner in this company and I guess making sure that it became successful over these last few years. Well, I think the biggest challenges have been in learning how to scale, learning how to create a culture, learning how to bring the right people around you to make sure that the business stays whole and that you don't lose the foundation of who and how you want the company to operate. 
when you're a really small company and there's, you know, six people, 10 people, 15 people, you're a really tight knit group and you, you're friends and you hang out and you eat and you grab beers and you do all those things. And so it's really easy to communicate. You know, one of the hardest times in our history was when we were approaching 50 employees and you get the conflict between salespeople and service and communication breakdowns. And well, the sales guy promised this and service can't do that, or they can't do it in the time frame that they said they could. And it's like, how do you bring a large organization together that works like a well-oiled machine? And that takes an enormous amount of work to get your product clear, get your promises to your clients clear, make sure that your service delivery models are consistent and align with those promises and products, and then turn it into something that's repeatable, and then understand the financial model so that you're building enough cash and safety in the business so that when something like COVID happens, you're not screwed. And that's tough. And over the time, you said your wife came to work with you in the company too? Yeah. Yep. Does she still do that today? Yeah, she still works in the company. She works part-time about 30 to 35 hours a week and sometimes more depending on what's required. She runs and manages payroll and has uh, folks that report to her that she leads and she does a fantastic job. She has incredible insights because she did the financials so long. She has incredible insights about how everything in the business flows through the company and she can see a train wreck coming you know, way far down the road and helps us to stay clear. You run a tight ship if 35 hours is part-time for you, huh? <laughs> well, that's, you know, sometimes it's 30, <laughs> sometimes it's, yeah, yeah. You're 39 hours, you're only part-time. That's <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, and then you said y'all had children along the way as well? Yep. Through relationships in the Navy, I had two girls. And when I met my wife here in Springfield, we have two boys. Okay. So you have four overall? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so do the other two that you have when you were in the Navy, do they live with you or do they live with you? No, I don't get to see them near often enough, but love them just the same. Where are they located? One is in Virginia and one is in Corpus Christi. So what's been the most challenging personal life like for you as far as, you know, you talked about you growing the business, your wife working in there, but has there been a challenge trying to balance personal life with business life? Oh yeah, it's horrible. When you're growing the business, we've got it under control. And it was a toll on our life, our marriage. It was challenging. The good, the bad, and the ugly of being the owner of the CEO is the buck stops with you. And so if the work's not getting done and you can't help and somebody else can't get it done, you've got to step in and make sure it happens. And so for years and years, I was making $35,000 a year and working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week. It's hard on the marriage and hard on the relationship and the trust and everything. And sometimes, depending on the business, that's just what you have to do to survive. And that's the mode we were in as we were learning how to transition into that recurring business model. And then as we grew, we couldn't always afford to bring in the people that we need or couldn't find the people that we need or it's just work that had to be done, whatever the situation was. And so that balance was rough. And then transitioning to the point in our lives when we had the kids, you can't spend that much time at work. And so you have to learn to adjust again and make some efficiencies or build the right things or people, processes, products in the business so that you don't have to work that many hours. Did you ever think you were going to get divorced? Oh, there were challenges for sure. We struggled as a couple more than once, but we were committed to powering through and she gave me the grace that I needed and I adjusted and we made it through it and we just hit 20 years. Well, congratulations. Thanks. We're proud of it. It was not easy, but it was definitely worth it. Was it harder because she was like in the company too? I know you said you're making 35000 Was that just you or was it y'all together? Because 
there's pros and cons, but it seems like too, if she's working with you, that it could be even more challenging to have talks outside of business, you know, for your personal life. Yeah, for sure. It does create challenges, uh, no doubt. We were able to navigate through it, obviously, but there were times where we got way too focused about work. You know, where the dinner conversations or evening conversations were about work rather than about life and what was going on. And, and the hard part is you're kind of there, even though we weren't necessarily always working like elbow to elbow, side by side, we were always kind of in the business together. And so there wasn't like a, well, how was your day? How was your day? Because we were always there. And so we didn't get that, you know, to hear and to support and kind of help each other. And then there was, you know, she would be frustrated about something in the business or I would be, but for the purposes of an example, you know, she would be frustrated about something in the business. And then at times she just wanted to be able to vent, you know, just like this was hard. This was a bad day. This was frustrating. I had to deal with this or that. And I would get defensive because she was attacking the company. I had to learn how to be the supportive husband and it'd be okay that she was mad about work. Like that's a part of life. And if she wants to be or needs to be frustrated and vent, like I had to give her the room to do that instead of trying to be the superhero and defend it and fix it and make it right. Going back, you said you had two other children while you're in the Navy. Mm -hmm. Right at the end, yeah. Oh, right at the end. Like, yeah, I mean, just I was curious, like how even because it was before you met your wife, it seemed like too, right? Yes. Like when you had the two other children, did you keep in contact with them a lot? Like, what's the balance like for that? Yeah, it was tough. Travel a lot. Cell phones are everywhere today, and. We certainly had cell phones, but they weren't like they were then where kids get phones when they're young. And so it was challenging to stay in touch. And so I would have to book flights to fly and see him or travel to see him. And it was just a full on commitment. How often do you stay in touch with them today? Text or call almost every day in some capacity. Each of them? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I don't know how you are as like a dad to those other two children. Like, I feel like it'd be way easier, obviously, to be a dad if the two that you have with your wife, you go home and they're there versus the other two. And where were they located? In Virginia and Corpus Christi. Texas. Okay. So yeah, that's a lot of flying too, because again, even then, I didn't know how committed you were as a father then, you know, I mean, was there any suggestions or Today, it's a little different. Like you can do FaceTime, right? I don't think people understand the difference that even if you're in the army or Navy, be able to FaceTime your spouse versus, again, just talking on the phone back then. So right. what was the biggest struggle like personally dealing with that and being in IT right when you started? I guess at least you have more free time to travel. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a lot of free time. You just had to make it. And it's just a commitment. My wife helped me a tremendous amount, you know, in terms of helping me stay on top of the schedule and the routines uh, to get out and see them to book the travel plans. And when we would finish one trip, we would start talking about the next one and holidays and making sure that we stayed true to those schedules so that they would come here and spend time and have those relationships. And so it was, it's like anything else, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. It takes a whole lot of work. And I, I made plenty of mistakes along the way and screwed up, you know, dozens of times, but stayed committed to making sure that I had that relationship. So your wife would go with you too? Like, when did you meet her? Sometimes she would go with me. We met in 99, I guess. You and your wife? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was right. I guess you're a year or two coming on the Navy? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it was still when the kids were really, really young, right? The other two that you had. Because again, that's another challenge. Like you said, the time allocation. That's the only reason I was saying they had more free time is like you didn't have your two kids with your wife at that point in time. So at least like if you had two kids with your wife and traveling to see two other kids, that's infinitely harder, it seemed like, versus it's easier to make free time. So it's like, again, when people always complain about like, how, how much time do you have to allocate when you're starting a business and stuff? I mean, you still had two children. 
before you started working in the business world, right? And then before becoming part owner. So right. uh, you can always make free time at some point to do whatever, uh, even when you're, again, starting a business or growing a business, whether it's a relationship with your wife at that point, like anyone else who's listening versus having to travel through the Southeast US to go see two other children. So so Caitlin and Allie are their names. And so 96 and 98 was when they were born. And Allie came right. You know, she was born after I was out of the Navy. And so it was definitely a challenge and unique to deal with all of those dynamics while trying to figure out how to be a civilian and then eventually, you know, run a business and develop a new relationship and have those all play together. Far from easy. Yeah, I agree with you because, you know, it's not easy. Like you're saying, the civilian life, it's way different than living on a ship when you have all these other guys and you're only around guys and whatnot. But then trying to start a marriage too. I imagine, did your wife care at all when you had, like when you broke the news to her that you had two other children and were you ever scared about breaking that news? Oh yeah, I was nervous as a cat, but she was real graceful, loved them and treated them like her own from the very beginning. So she's been wonderful. I mean, it sounds like it as far as if she was even willing to travel with you and try to help that. And at least, again, it was early on, like they were both younger. So I think if she can felt like she could get way more involved, right, in their life versus if they're like 12 and 13 or something like that, I think it'd be way more difficult, it seemed like to me. I don't know. They've pretty well known her their whole life. And how old are they today? Uh, well, 90, 96, 98. So Allie just turned 23 and uh, Caitlin is 25. Okay. And what are your two other children's names and ages? Tyler is the older boy. He's 16 and Will uh, just turned 14. So I'm, I was challenging you. Your wife wrote me an email to make sure you knew all the ages and names. So. <laughs> yeah. How'd they end up, the two older girls? No, they're good. I mean, did they end up going to college too or what, what happened with them? Allie did. She just graduated from Old Dominion University there in Norfolk and got a full-time job and is doing outstanding. No wonder why you had to start your, well, you didn't, again, you didn't start, you bought into this business basically, but you know, if you got four kids and you had to pay for schooling, obviously you got to make some money, right? Yeah. We definitely helped along the way, but she did a lot of it herself. She worked in college and did a great job. So really proud of what she's been able to achieve. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. I guess, again, looking back, is there any last words of wisdom or anything else that you'd like to leave for anyone who's listening now? Oh, I could talk until tomorrow about lessons we've learned and things we've screwed up along the way. But I would say love what you do because you're going to spend so much time in it and you have to have the perseverance and the passion. So if you're just in a job or in a situation and kind of going through the grind, you're not going to have what it takes to make it to the next level. And so make sure that you're around people that you enjoy and that the business that you're in, you enjoy, and that you do it for the right reasons. You know, one of my biggest beliefs is that because of my experiences in the Navy and seeing both good and bad and how leaders operated, is that, that small business can change lives. You know, you can take people who didn't have a pot to piss in, didn't have an opportunity, didn't believe in themselves, and help them to see their potential and break through these false glass ceilings that we form as we grow. I mean, we've been able to just do tremendous things with people. And they did the work. We created an opportunity. And so it's been fantastic to see lives changed and generations of families change. And when you're doing it for the right reasons, it it works out. Well, I guess there was some, actually, I had a couple other notes I was thinking about. You're saying like when you're in the Navy, you learned like discipline and structure. And it seems like you're able to implement that in your business. Is there a type of structure or discipline that you have daily that kind of helps you be able to achieve your goals or be more efficient? Because we even talked about like how you need to free up time to do other things. And I think that's one thing that I forget about sometimes is like, do you have any structure or routine that helps you to be more efficient that 
if you maybe didn't have at one point in time that you can see is like one of your superpowers or something of that nature? I think it's a good, consistent morning routine. And it changes over the years as your life changes and kid activities and commitments change. But a good morning routine, I get up about 4.30 every morning, have some quiet time, look at my plans for the day, look at the top three things I want to accomplish for the day and get a workout in. And I like to meditate, although I don't always get it in. But like to to have that morning time that really allows me to to have a clear head and go into the day full of energy and with the right focus. So developing a consistent way to operate that works for you. Not everybody is a morning person, but you have to find your way of creating success. You can't lead others if you can't lead yourself. And you have to be good at that. And I think it requires a certain self-discipline to be able to do those things that lead to successful outcomes. That's an excellent quote. Did you come up with that? No, no, I'm sure not. I know. I've told somebody, like, everyone's come up with something at some point in time, but it's not, you can say it's to, like, Teddy Roosevelt or something like that, you know? Like, you know, like, yeah. I think that is really smart because if you can't lead others, if you can't lead yourself, because the same thing, like, yeah, how are you going to tell other people to be disciplined if you can't do it? Right. What drives you to wake up every morning to do that? Because your employees don't know if you wake up at 4.30, do they? No, no. I mean, I do a thought of the day in internal post that I make every morning that's kind of an inspirational quote or a thought or whatever. And you post that at 4.30 a.m. so they know you woke up? No, I usually... <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking, yeah. Thomas. But no, they don't know if I'm up or not up, but I do it because it gives me energy. It gives me focus and it makes my day better. In that quiet time, I get more done oftentimes before seven o'clock because of meetings or other conflicts or challenges than sometimes I get done all the rest of the day. I mean, I've mentioned that multiple times when I used to wake up that early and now maybe it'll make me start doing that again is, yeah, when I used to get in the office before, I mean, most people really came in like 8.30 or 9. And if you got, if I got in there at like 5, if I put in two, three hours of work, I could literally be done for the day and I'd done more than I know all those other people did probably in two or three days. If anyone's skeptical, just try it for like three days in a row or even one day. 100%. It drives my whole... I mean, it's part of the reason that the company exists because that quiet time, either early in the morning, late at night, that's where the real work gets done for me. So have you always been an early riser? I've always been a (laughs) non-sleeper. I was going to ask what time you go to bed. Yeah, four or five hours is about all I get. And that's not necessarily healthy and good. I'm trying to work on it and get more sleep. But from college on, uh, four to five hours is all I ever needed to get by. Like we were mentioning too, it's kind of weird because I used to be super early morning person. And then for a while, it started to be like late night. I'd be able to like do a lot more work. So every person is different. You're just going to find it's one random quote or something that I can remember on Twitter. There's like, they're saying how most people like, how inefficient they are nine to five, but like almost every business is there versus like five to nine is really when you can actually have that free time to be more creative or, you know, be quiet and get a lot more stuff done. And it's just important to think about that, you know, I think breaking up your day, even if you, like you said, if you get in that early, if you took a two or three hour break in middle afternoon, come back rejuvenated, just try different things that, you know, I think are worth trying because some people might never ever have thought about like, what happens if I start working at 5 a.m.? Yeah. <laughs> because it's not normal, people would think, but you have to do not normal things to grow a business. And you find, you know, one of my little tricks, if you will, or ways is the things that 
don't necessarily give me energy. I find ways to make them enjoyable, like get behind on email and I'll have six or 700 emails that I need to plow through. Oh, Jesus, God. And, oh, yeah, I mean, you, it's crazy. You get three or 400 a day. So, I mean, it's it's a regular thing. And I'll get behind on, you know, clean out all the BS that's in there and I'll still have whatever number. It's, you know, it could be 400, it could be 700, it's a bunch of email. It's just this laborious thing. But I'll go down and, you know, sit at either a coffee shop, sit at a pub, have a beer. And man, I can just plow through some email and just make it enjoyable. I'm not hammering the beer or anything, but you type some things that you don't want to. But the experience of sitting in the coffee shop or sitting in the pub is different than being in the office. And I enjoy the environment. And so I can get a tremendous amount of work done. And I'm not sitting in the office in this kind of whatever environment. And it's a great environment here, but you need to shake it up. You need to make some changes. And so you take those tasks that you don't love and you do them in environments that you do and it makes it a better experience. And so you can get, you can plow through it. Yeah. Or in your case, you'd be like, hey, honey, if I get three to 400 emails done, I'm going to come home and we're going to make another baby. (laughs) One of your goals. Yeah. No, uh, we're done. (laughs) We're done. We can practice making a baby. But yeah, the ambience of different places too. Like you said, I love it. But I mean, pre-COVID, it was way easier. Just get in different spaces and try different things. You got to mix it up and create those spaces that give you energy. Easy for work and the world and all the negativity that you hear about to pull you down. So you have to find ways that give you energy. And my morning routine, you know, getting out of the office, sitting in the coffee shop, whatever. Those are great environments for me to get excited about getting things done. Thank you, Thomas, for sharing your experience. I said I was going to say it one more time. So anyone could go to adaptordie.com and they can check out, sign up for your book. Yeah, that's exactly right. Cool. Well, if someone wants to say thank you for doing the episode here, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? You can send an email. The core business is jmark.com, J-M-A-R-K. And so Tom at jmark.com is a great way to send us a note and we'd love to hear from you. And do you provide, it says IT support, I'm looking at Missouri, Oklahoma, and Arkansas? Yeah, nationwide, really, depending on the environment, but for sure, that's our core market. Okay. So I guess anyone who's looking for IT guys too, right? You could help them out? 100%. Okay. Yeah, because you said seven states earlier, I think, too, right? But you can do it even without going into the office now, I imagine, right? That's correct. Yeah, we have clients in 43 states and employees in seven. So yeah, I did listen. That's pretty good. That I'm not usually can't remember that well. That I remember you said, yeah, you had employees in seven states, and I figured you could go further than that. But yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. It was a great story. And thank you for diving into details. I think it was really impactful. And hopefully people got some practical stuff they can do. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Thomas. Hey, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate the chance to talk with you and look forward to hearing it. You looking for more tech-based interviews? If so, here's five more recommendations for you to check out. Try episode 198 with Jim Warner or episode 79 with Brad Martineau, another one, episode 195 with Howard Gottlieb, number four is episode 71 with Jordan Gal of Carthook, and last but not least, episode 180 with Diana Goodwin of Aquamobile. Oh, and if you feel like helping us keep this podcast going, then consider becoming a Patreon member. Hope you enjoy those tech-based interviews, and to become a Patreon member, just check your episode notes below.